the world of marketing has changed. And I mean, I consider us as equal parts a marketing entity as a bike racing entity because you really have to, you know, I feel like that's all the all the support we receive as bike racers is marketing budgets, comes from marketing budgets. And if we're not really, you know, doing effective work for our our partners to inspire people to have a positive impression of these companies, then we're not doing our jobs. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of King of the Ride podcast. Ted King here, your host today and always on King of the Ride. Let's just jump right into it. Our guest today, Colin Strickland, Dirty Kansas 200 winner, a short while back in June of 2019, that Colin Strickland, my friends. Also, the champion Red Bull-sponsored fixed gear racer, the environmental studies major, the Texan who is who is just trying not to inherit a junker car and therefore rode a bike to get around, the manager of what just might be the first professional gravel team, that Colin Strickland. He and I had the chance to catch up and talk these aspects of his life, but way beyond these while we were in Iceland, of all places. Colin and I raced the Rift in Iceland back in late July, staying in the beautiful Ranga Hotel in the town of Hella, Iceland, outside of Hosvoller. On the eve of the race, Colin and I had the chance to chat for nearly an hour, which, to be honest, is nearly an hour more than Colin and I have ever chatted before. I definitely enjoyed the conversation. He and I have made small talk over the years in the gravel peloton, but on the whole, Colin is on the quieter side, letting his actions speak louder than words. So it was really fun to get some time, sit down, chat, and figure out what makes him tick. Colin is definitely a great guy. I knew that going in beforehand, but having this time to come together to chat, to figure out what what makes him go around, it was super cool. He is thoughtful, he is curious, he is articulate, he's freaking strong on the bike here in what I think is safe to say, a breakout season of 2019, recorded in the lobby of a hotel. There was a bit of clanging and banging around, so dear listener, please don't adjust your volume or look over your shoulder thinking that you are in the lobby of a hotel. So let's see, what is next up? Hot dang, it is definitely feeling like the tail end of summer. Humidity is ebbing, it is crisp, it is cool here in the mornings back home in Vermont. Some very fun events still coming right up on the horizon. This very week, Laura and I are going to head north of the border. Check out the two world tour bike races going on up there, Grand Prix Quebec City and Montreal. Taking a similar schedule that we took last year. Hopefully finding some time to make make some time for the pod. Taking them in as tourists. But this is a nice return to those cities for me. Since I raced them a half dozen times in my career. Usually marking a mid-September end to the traditional road season. Soon after that, uh, we got the Ian Boswell Peachum Fall Fondo. That's going to be September 21. Most certainly looking forward to that one. And the last big target, Unpaved Pennsylvania with the event day October 13th in the heart of the Susquehanna Valley in Pennsylvania. I'm excited to explore that area to dip my toe into a race that Dave and Mike have been so so open in opening their community up to me. Super psyched about that one, Unpaved Pennsylvania. And, of course, King Challenge. 
That is an enormous part of my calendar every year. Not a target per se, because it's not a race. Fitness does not need to be peaking at the King Challenge. The King Challenge is an event that I started with Arlen Chaffee nearby to my hometown in New Hampshire. Oh, maybe a straight shot hour north of Boston. This is a ride that benefits the Kreppel Center, an organization benefiting adults living with acquired brain injury. So longtime listeners will know that my dad suffered a stroke back in 2003, but the effects are still relevant today as they were 16 years ago. My friends, make no mistake, brain injuries suck. They are often hidden or swept under a rug or pushed behind closed doors. Meanwhile, the King Challenge and the Kreppel Center, they are awesome. So whether you are brand new to cycling or a long-time rider, check out kingchallenge.org to join, or I will be sure to put my fundraising link in the show notes below. If you care to support my lofty goal of raising $10,000 for the cause. Lastly, as we segue into the off-season, a question that I receive the entire year is people ask me what I do for my nutrition. And given the relevant topic of today's pod, chatting with Colin, we hear about what he did today. People are always asking what I eat on long gravel races, how I maintain my nutrition, 10 plus hour gravel races, 200 mile gravel races, but also every distance, every time less than that or longer than that. So there is no better, no easier source for your nutrition than to check out the feed and specifically the feed.com slash king. Me, I'm an untapped all the time kind of guy, as you may know. You can find that on the feed. If you're not sure what exactly you need, you can chat with their live experts to figure out what you need to be at your best, at your best for your next event, for training throughout. Anytime, chat with their experts. They are awesome. See my personally curated nutritional suite with 15% off, again, thefeed.com slash king, or just use the code KING10, K-I-N-G, one zero, for 10% savings store-wide. Folks, that is it for me. I think it's time to get down to the pod. Please enjoy this conversation with Colin Strickland. Recording and with Debbie in hand. Ting, ting, ting. Cheers, Colin. Salud. Um, welcome to Iceland, which I don't really have the privilege to welcome you to Iceland because you've been here for, I think, 24 hours prior to my arrival. Um, yes, I got the jump. You did get the jump. You you got in, let's see, today is Friday. I got in Thursday, meaning you got in Wednesday. What, what, have, you, what have you been doing? What have you seen? What's, I arrived... Wednesday morning and uh-huh. arrived in Reykjavik and was welcomed by a couple of friends, new friends I'd made, a local racer. Um, we He was introduced as Hadi. He's one of the hitters. So Hadi. Hadi. That is, of course, short for a name which I cannot exactly. pronounce. Exactly. With many um, vowels and consonants and, and J's. And Thor, which is also short for another badass Nordic name I cannot pronounce. So uh, anyway, they gave me a quick tour around Reykjavik and then... Uh, um, I hitched another ride with an American named Mark who brought me over here to the race uh, 
start finish town. Uh-huh. Have you been able to pronounce this town? Um, Rurvold. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, Edit I, that out. I've large. I've tried to make this a cultural experience because this is most certainly the most exotic place that I've raced a bike uh, in a post-professional career, professional 2.0. And so I'm trying to learn the languages. I'm trying to eat the cuisine. Um, I mean, pickled fish is not new to me. I'm yet to have fermented shark, which apparently is part of the Icelandic cuisine. But I think my biggest challenge so far is, is, is pronunciation, just flat out. Like double L's are actually pronounced as a T, like T-L, we accept any sort of uh, criticism from our audience in, in terms of pronunciation. Or have you seen the the letter that's a D with a line through it that apparently yes. is pronounced as an S? Yes, I've seen this one. Hey, hey, hey. Difficult language. Well, um, so far in my two bike rides, I've been nothing but floored with the um, with the landscape, with the topography, with the the mixed in short distances, the the mixed level of terrain. What have you seen? Uh, thus far, I have seen the capital city, which was itself a bustling metropolitan area. And then thus, uh, since then, I've been on the south coast, which is certainly the tourist um, tourist destination of the island. Um, this has been confirmed by my contact with locals. Uh, <laughs> uh, I spent Thursday, yesterday, with a, a f- local photographer um, doing some product apparel shoot for Giordana. So we got to do a tour of the southern lowlands cool. um, all the way over to a town about 80 kilometers to the east called Vik and saw a bunch of beautiful places it's definitely high season and this was uh this was visible in the number of international tourists like us that were visiting these same locations mm-hmm. handful of tour buses it's funny that the main interstate is a a two-lane highway with one lane in either direction i found that drivers are extremely cordial um they drive below the speed limit which makes me feel like a criminal when i'm humming along at 58 miles an hour but yeah so far excellent so the last time we hung out was in emporia or actually last you know i was gonna say that actually the last time we hung out was about 100 miles outside of emporia when you went on a little flyer there um we'll talk about dk shortly but i want to hear the story before the story you're an Austin, Texas resident now. Are you, where were you born and raised? I was born uh, near to Austin, about 30 miles to the west, on an organic farm that my parents uh, ran in my early childhood. Um, but after about three years um, living there as a child, we moved into Austin. I had three older siblings who, they were tired of commuting to school into Austin. So mm-hmm. we moved into South Austin uh, when I was three years old and I lived there ever since. I did a short stint at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon, but transferred to University of Texas and finished my studies there, majoring in environmental studies. Cool. Um, any translation to that organic farm upon which you grew up or just a happenstance coincidence? Um. Let's see. Well, my parents are both pretty uh, hard, hardcore environmentalists, so that certainly shaped my um, worldview and desire to do something meaningful with my life. So I figured environmental science uh, would be a, a fitting uh, course of study. Uh, and then uh, the year after graduating, I went into uh, the actual work field of environmental science and worked for a consulting firm in Austin. 
mm-hmm. and it was in the private sector. And I quickly learned that while you know we were pri- we were proud to do good science, it ended up being you know often as uh, our employers were the private sector. So we were working on highway projects and suburban development, which are not you know not two of the legacies I really would choose to leave behind. So as soon as I could transition that into more bike racing, uh, I took that opportunity. <laughs> a clear segue from the private sector developing highways to bike racing. Uh, uh, at what point do you start riding a bike more so than just around town or, you know, bombing around to your friend's house? Well, I grew up in Austin without a car. I made the conscious decision to not let my parents buy me a really crappy car as they had my other siblings. I think I was just a little bit too proud to drive uh-huh. a beater. Uh, I'd rather bum a ride or roll up on a bicycle, a nice bicycle than uh, drive a, a Toyota Presida or something like that yeah, yeah, or yeah. a Mercury Tracer. <laughs> um, anyway, so I I've, I've really grew up riding bikes and I didn't really realize it, but I like to ride them fast in hindsight. When you're riding in deadly Austin traffic pre-bike lanes, um, you have a tendency to go as fast as you can. The fewer cars pass you, fewer cars can hit you. So that was kind of my ethos growing up. And then I did my first race after college, about age 2000, let's see, that was 2011. So age 23, I believe. Okay. You're born in what? What is that, 88? 80, 86. I was born in the end of 86. Right. So, um, yeah, I think I was about 23. Okay. Um, interesting. So no collegiate racing. I love the, Not a bit. the path of collegiate racing to to any sort of professional peloton. Um, you do the traditional Cat 5, 4, 3, 2, 1? Absolutely. Or, okay. Attaboy right there in Austin. I mean, Austin sec- cycling is a hotbed. Yeah, we had the uh, local hitter team elbows racing at oh, the yeah. time with a, a bunch of very strong... Um, National U.S. national riders, including Travis McCabe and Eric Marcotte, yep. and Heath Blackgrove, and yep. Logan Hutchins, and uh, oh, Tom Sullivan. Although we didn't see him much, uh, Jacob Smalls, uh-huh. Matt Stevens. It was, it was a strong squad to get to race at your local road races. As that is super cool. Um, I mean, Austin has been a, a hotbed for cycling for for many many years now. I mean, you also have the likes of the Lawson Craddocks, who is a Texan, and Nate Brown spent some time there. Was there any overlap? Amongst those fellows, they had already pretty much graduated up to uh, national level teams. Uh, I think that was Action, the Action Squad at that time. Before I really got to race against them at all, I, I was an underling. So no, really, no, no crossover until I was, you know, riding the local driveway P one two races and would run into Lawson there and, you know, get my teeth kicked in by him. Sure, nothing like a climber showing you what World Tour Fitness is as yeah. he rips around a, a, a crit track. So you also have a nice pedigree in criterium racing, but then specifically single speed, fixie rather. Um, at what point do you say, okay, crit racing is not yet dangerous enough. I want to do single speed because that absolutely terrifies me. Well, actually, I would, I would argue that... Uh U.S. geared crit racing is about as dangerous as it gets because of the ability to move move through the field um, and to conserve energy. Whereas in a fixed gear race, it's a lot more like a cyclocross race where the course is so technical and bikes are actually in in cross. You're fighting the rolling resistance of the terrain, but in fixed gear racing, you're actually 
everyone's doing the same number of RPMs approximately and kind of wearing down at the same rate. So mm -hmm. to get to the front, you don't just click down a few gears and wait for a lull. You have to get out in the wind and haul ass up the side, which is just everyone's kind of going the top speed most of the race. So it's really ends up being a pretty sinuous and single file race, which I'm sure, as you know, ends up usually be, is more safe yeah. condition than a bunching Tulsa Tough, whereas people are trying to push eight wide through a turn. So while, yes, handling the bike is extreme challenge, at the Red Hook level, anyone at the front of the race or even the top 50 is pretty damn competent bike handler. Huh. And much more familiar than your anonymous U.S. crit um, peloton as well. So a little bit more... Uh, a little bit more care for your fellow riders there. That is fascinating. I've never heard that. I've never, uh, be honest, never really talked about it. I just think that fixed gear racing looks... Sounds terrifying. Terrifying. I mean, if you go to your, like, any sort of contemporary criterium and watch it, you're like, that is terrifying. So I, I get both sides. Um, how... What's the word I'm looking for? How ruled is it? Um, meaning... In terms of gearing, you know, you can be have an advantage or disadvantage if, if you're spinning a light gear versus riding a big gear. Are there rules which gears you can ride? Or? Uh, there are no rules regarding the gearing, uh, but the course typically dictates the range that people choose. Um, some riders like turn it. It pretty much, you know, comes down to what kind of cadence do you enjoy, do you like to spin. Um, but also the courses, some of them, such as the Brooklyn course, um, one point it had three pretty tight hairpins. So that means a lot of you know, decelerating down to, you know, 17 miles an hour to go through a hairpin, yeah. 15 miles an hour, and then you'd have to accelerate out of that. Uh, yeah. And then you also reach long straightaways for, you know, 200 meters plus. So you get up to top speed again of maybe, you know, 34, 35 miles an hour. So you, you kind of have to pick a gear that you can, you know, it's like pick, choose your weapon yeah. and then you, you know, jump in a cage with it. And, you know, you're, you're never, it's, you're always going to be undergeared or overgeared. So you kind of have to decide what you're, you know, what you're more comfortable doing and, uh, you know, and then just roll with it. Literally. That is fascinating. Um, what, give me a translation. If you're humming along at 34 miles an hour, what, what, what is it a gear equivalent of? Is that like a 54, 11 if, spun at if 100 you, RPM? Definitely, definitely not. If you're okay. going, you know, that would be a, certainly a top speed of 34, 35 in one of these races. So that would mean you're doing a, you know, a flat out speed on a straightaway. So that's about your maximum you would be comfortable spinning for a short amount of time. So that would probably be a 115 okay. RPMs okay. and your, you know, your sweet spot would be more about 27 miles an hour, 26, um, at hundred RPMs. So then you'd also be pushing, 70 rpms when you're pulling out of a turn out of a mm -hmm. hairpin um going 15 you know 17 miles an hour so it's your your average you know your cadence is all over the map and i would analyze it to see what my average cadence would mm -hmm. be based on different gearing and that's the best info i could go off of clearly before i ask that question one i'm tremendously naive and two i didn't think about it because right you're not going to push a 54 11 at 100 rpm for any point in the race. Um, so somewhere along the way, you say, at presumably a conscious choice, one hour fixed gear racing is cool. This gravel thing is kind of cool. I want to go dip my toe over here. How do you start exploring gravel? Well, part of it came from just enjoying the bikes and the, uh, 
the training in Austin and the, a great way to get away from the boomtown traffic of Austin was to seek out, you know, empty gravel roads. Uh, so that's, I started doing that pretty early in, um, in my cycling, um, endeavors and, you know, would use a cross bike. I had a steel cross bike and that allowed me to fit, you know, 40 millimeter tires. So I'd be riding trails and then eventually venturing out to the countryside, finding empty gravel roads and, uh, stringing the other loops of those. And yeah, it just came naturally to, to kind of go participate in the local gravel races that were emerging about three or four years ago. And, you know, just realized, just it fell in love with just the kind of the organization and the and the scene and it, the fact that it's mostly people you don't encounter in the US or the the local road races it's kind of a different crowd and the way that the out of necessity just to create larger fields the mass start worked ended up being you know if you have a shit luck you end up kind of riding with people you would have never ridden with and getting to chat and just enjoy just variety of personalities and not the racing the same dudes <laughs> every single you know race so that was really enjoyable and uh it just kind of drew me in through that and then you know everyone's virtually everyone has a good time at a gravel race that's kind of the most stark difference i'd say is only a couple of people really are r absolutely ecstatic mm -hmm. at, at a road race and they're usually the, <laughs> the folks who won yeah but everyone else is either dis disappointed to some degree and mm -hmm. that degree varies on a you know their outcome so it's a lot easier to make sure everyone has a good time at a gravel race. So it shows in the just kind of the demeanor and the outlook of the folks who are participating. Yeah. Yeah. Totally true. I mean, the, the element of suffering, I think, exists both in a road racing criterion, I mean, traditional road racing background. As much as it is in gravel, if you want to have a good time, yeah, you're going you're gonna to push some watts. But ultimately, I feel like everybody is is in it for, for different reasons, and that is what puts more smiles on people's faces. And, and certainly, as you hit upon, the mass start, I think, is a huge contributing factor to what makes these races fun. So talk to me about Meteor. Is it Meteor Cycling? What is the name of the team? Meteor Giordana Allied is this year's 2019 uh, title sponsor set that we okay. uh, call ourselves. And the previous that. iteration was... Previous iteration was just uh, Meteor Giordana from last year, from 2018. Very so we good. added Allied to the mix. Excellent. Hands hands in the air, hats off to sponsors coming to the mix. Meteor is a great name because I believe it's non-endemic to the cycling world. So I thought it was like saying, for American audience, Slipstream, an organization that runs the team. Um I'm incorrect. It is Meteor, which is a, a standalone company. Tell me about Meteor real quick, the, the independent from cycling company. The Meteor is a cafe and bike shop that was founded um, by Doug Zell, who's a good friend of mine, who is the founder of Intelligentsia Coffee, um, which is a Chicago-based coffee roaster, one of the originators of the third wave, you know, origin, uh, Oregon, origin trade uh, system. Um and he grew that company and then began the Meteor Shop, which is a cafe and bike shop um, that serves Intelligentsia Coffee based in Little Rock, um, where he was living, working on the Allied Bicycle Factory project. No kidding. Is he a co-founder of Allied? Doug Zell is a co-founder of Allied, correct. 
and serial uh, entrepreneurs. Yeah, he is exact. I describe him as a serial entrepreneur, helpless serial addict to entrepreneurship. Uh, but largely so, sticking to like cool upstarts in yeah. facets that, that people would be attracted to. Exactly. He, uh, he's done quite well off. in coffee and then has translated that to uh, his other passions, which is fine food, mm-hmm. sparkling wine, and, uh, and bike shops. So he's merging those two things, really, cafe and bike shop. And he's, we're, uh, I say we because I'm part of the marketing department technically. So we're f- fixing to open uh, the second location uh, on South Congress Avenue in Austin, Texas in September. So construction is reaching close. It's a beautiful space and will be a, an extremely bike-friendly cafe and on-premise, off-premise beer and wine sales location. How diggity. That's super cool. Are you... Let's go to the brass tax questions right now. How many um, how many riders on the 2019 team? The 2019 team consists of myself, Kevin Gerkins of Elevates Pro Cycling last year, and Michael Sheehan. Mm-hmm. Michael rode for me last year under the Meteor Giordana team, uh, but he previously was on Jelly Belly for two years. Mm-hmm. And they are both local Austin folks who I grew up racing bikes with. Very so it good. seemed natural to kind of pull them on in a... You know, I knew I knew their racing style and their personalities, and uh, they were good fits. Fitting. Uh, team roster 2018. Mostly numbers that I'm looking for. Oh, that was that. Uh, 2018 was Michael Sheehan, myself, and Amity Gregg. Okay. And that's three by my count. That's three this year by my count. Are you are you GM? Are you running the operation? Is it is it purely the relationship that you have with Doug and and his relationship with Allied and Meteor that allows you to say, hey, I need to make this happen? Or are you are you running that a helps show? That are you Doug, GM? Doug and I were roommates last year. Uh, yeah. But yes, it is technically I am the I am the manager of the ship uh, for better or worse, weathering the storms of all the negotiations and stuff. But it's been this is the third year that I, you know, set off uh, running my own team and I've developed some really awesome relationships with what I, I just pursued what I thought uh, saw as the, you know, s- some of the coolest companies in the game and, you know, was fortunate enough to convince them to partner with us and help us with equipment and, you know, logistics and what have you. Well, I'm psyched you're keeping it local with, uh, with Roca. I'm, I'm a proud partner with Roca. Oh, They're awesome. an awesome yes. base company. Great folks. So we might not be riding the same bikes, might not be riding to help each other per se. We're both going vying for the win, but good work for we're, them. We're um, using the same windshield. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I mean, talk to me about the direction of professional cycling in America. If you got, you got, you know, Jeremy Powers running Aspire, which is okay. That's on the cyclocross side, but it seems a challenge this day and age to, to start up and especially maintain a professional domestic cycling team. Whereas I think probably a half dozen years ago, 10 years ago, if you say, hey, I'm going to start a professional gravel team, people wouldn't just laugh at you. They would just scratch their head and say, I don't know what that means. And now that has more brand effect and marketing power than saying, I'm going to start a domestic pro cycling team on the road. Isn't it beautiful how times change? It is. Well, lucky for me, I'm, I've barely missed that whole era of professional cycling um, of the early aughts, early mid aughts. And um, so I never really knew that paradigm and never really 
worked within it or even considered it because it seemed stale and ineffective. And I think that has proven correct as times have changed. And just the, the world of marketing has changed. And um, I mean, I consider us as equally equal parts a marketing entity as a bike racing entity because you really have to, you know, I feel like that's all the, all the f- support we receive as bike racers is marketing budgets, comes from marketing budgets. And if we're not really, you know, doing effective work for our, our partners to inspire people, you know, to have a positive, you know, impression of these companies, then we're not doing our jobs. And why should they support us, really? So we keep that, you know, foremost in our, in our minds, whatever we're doing in our quote-unquote jobs. So whether it be, you know, at being at events or training and, you know, having your phone and just sharing your experience really is what, we, is what I kind of emphasize and make it interesting and animate races and make people give a shit about us riding bikes out in the woods. I mean, <laughs> why else should they care? Well said. Um, I think naturally it, it, it leads to a transient lifestyle. Um, again, a month and a half ago, we were in outside of Emporia, Kansas. Here we are in uh, Husfell or Iceland. Uh, where, where are some of the keynote events on your calendar for 2019? Where let's have see. I seen you? Where are you going? What have you done? Twenty nineteen. Let's see what happened. Uh, I can BWR. BWR. Yes. Saw you there, San Diego. I think that might be the only time I've seen you this year. Yeah, BWR. Um, Belgian waffle ride. Um, Oregon? Land Run. Land Run one hundred. I was yes, there. Yes. Quick, briefly. You were there. A, local. I mean, yeah. coming in from Austin is a lot easier than coming in from New England. It's true. We, we were local favorites. We screwed that one. <laughs> and uh, then, of course, Emporia. Kansas, huh? and we went out to the uh, the Oregon Trail gravel grinder, which was an amazing experience. So hard, I hear that was a hard. bruiser. Absolute, absolute kick in the face. Uh, amazing experience. I highly recommend it. Just uh-huh. gorgeous, gorgeous terrain, gorgeous courses. Really well executed. Really blew my mind. The logistics they were able to handle for us to keep us on the bikes, fed, watered, alive. I mean, sometimes barely, but it was incredible. Um, and and to our, our uneducated audience about that one, logistically walking through it. I mean, that was a, a multi-day event in the in the Oregon outback. Yes, out in the wilds of Oregon, of of uh, just west of Bend, Oregon. It was a five-day camping stage race. Um, so, so you're not at the Marriott, and you are you are not at the Marriott, and you're not even in the same location ever, huh. for two nights. At all, we were actually packing up tent or packing your gear up every morning and unpacking every night. After stages, the first stage was seventy five hundred feet of climbing. Second stage was five thousand. Third was ten thousand feet of climbing, hey, hey. and tons of sand. It was a dry year, <laughs> and just just unreal, unreal. Uh, I and you know it was an amazing time for me and a flatlander, but also climbers would really be at home and good bike handlers. It was. It was just an experience I will not soon forget. Um, who who is your maid service, so to speak? I mean, who is deploying the tents? Who's, who's oh, we d- you no, guys you we did up, everything. Okay, yeah. I, I, can, mean, I heard you say you, you pack up your stuff. I think mean like you're rolling up your sleeping bag. Yeah, no, no, no. You break your tent. Uh, you can employ the the race to set up a tent for you ahead of time if mm-hmm. you wish to. But um, yuppies, we didn't do that. We we roughed it, and I went down hard the first stage, twenty miles in. So I. 
I got to spend the whole week with Road Rash camping. Um, nice. So I had a, I had a hell of a week. It was it was one one that uh you know those are the the ones that stick in your stick in your mind though you remember uh-huh. yeah, for powerful sure powerful experiences. So don't do that, but do the race. <laughs> I encourage you. Um, and then moving forward, see, I have the ability to to tell you what I'm doing any subsequent weekend from now. But if you ask me what I did a week ago or a month ago, I will immediately forget. So I know what I'm doing in the next uh, yes. six weekends. What do you got coming up? Uh, let's see. We are. Going to um, Steamboat Springs Gravel Race. See you there. Soon. Uh, my teammates are going to um, an event that Envy is having in Salt Lake City on the 9th of August. Did you get? Did you do Crusher? I did Crusher last year in 2018. Talk about a climber's race. It, That's a beast. That Good work. was Hats brutal. Off to Burke for Absolutely that brutal. Again, not my style of racing. I call that slow racing, and I'm <laughs> I excel in fast racing <laughs> scenarios. Um, anyway, what after that? Let's see. Rebecca's private Idaho. Um, Excellent event. The Red Bull San Francisco Bay Climb, which is a sprint up three blocks of San Francisco's steepest hills. Sound the best and worst of all your worlds. Yeah, we're just like throwing everything together and mixing it all up. What's uh? What is that? I mean, is that one street, or are you doing multiple turns? No, it's it's a straight straight up um, straight up um, I believe it's on Potrero Hill. Uh-huh. Uh, it's it's three blocks. Uh, Payson McKelvin won it last year. He's a a wicked snapper. So it's like just a uh, it's hard to call it a sprint. It's like a sprint climber, punchers, uh-huh. punchers delight. So yeah, you have to pump out a lot of watts. But also be light enough to make them effective and repeat it. A yeah, times and then go repeat through the, the performance a couple of times. So, um, yeah, that's that's what comes to mind. I'm sure I'm missing a lot of a lot of events. No, but you, I mean you hit the, some really good keynote ones. Um, let's jump back all the way back to a month and a half ago um, in Emporia. I mean, you and I were riding bikes with about 3000 people to start and then quickly it's down to 100 and then it's 50 and it's 20 and then it's a half dozen um most pro people in that front group have world tour or professional experience yourself included professional experience certainly not of the same distance and um traditional training you know if you're racing in the world tour you're racing 5 6 7 hour races if you are uh pacing then you're you're you know, endurance mountain bike national champion. So he's racing off-road for many hours at a time. Your background is different. You go on to win the race, which is incredible and awesome. Talk to me about your training and the and the trans translation that you go from a crit background to winning, you know, arguably the hardest 200-mile race off-road hmm. this, this, this world knows. Let's see. The two previous years, um, I did compete at gravel worlds which is 150 miles not nearly as rugged of terrain um but it's a good seven hour effort and i was able to win that two years in a row no fluke good work um so let's see and let's see last year i flatted early and made up a 12 minute deficit solo to get back to the main group and then rolled with the break and was able to win that so i definitely have done long experiences not quite that long Mm -hmm. um so I'm familiar with the concept, but uh, <laughs> so this year uh, I was I was really stoked to get into Dirty Kanza. So I was in the mix. Uh, so was my training I'd planned on you know starting before Belgian Waffle Ride, you know ex- 
competing in that race. I love that race. I think it could suit me on a given day. Uh, and then kind of lead in that the next three weeks to um, Dirty Kansas. Unfortunately, I got um, bronchitis two and a half weeks before BWR. bronchitis. Yeah, and it was a uh, – I had to spend two and a half weeks off the bike before Belgian Waffle Ride. So I went into that ride, that race pretty flat, um, and it showed, of course. Um, but then – so between Belgian Waffle Ride and Dirty Kansas, I got in uh, – two of the biggest weeks I've ever done. I did a 31 hour week, um, the likes of which I had never experienced mm -hmm. in pretty hot weather in Austin, um, mostly alone. And I think, I think I just conditioned my body to be ready for the beating we all took that day. And I just felt it really, I felt prepared. Let's mm -hmm. just say that. Sweet. <laughs> um, physically, I didn't really suffer as much I w as I would have expected. And I think the conditions are what really took down most people who were favorites. Um, I think, I think it's fun to hear how stories blow out of proportion. Um, and by that, I mean, after you'd taken the win, people were saying, man, did you hear that Colin has been training? for months on end in the brutal heat, putting together 30-hour weeks after 30-hour weeks after 30-hour weeks. So I love that there is a there is a legitimate foundation to it. Um, absolutely, I agree that the conditions are what took out a lot of people. Um, the heat was 5 to 10 degrees warmer than they expected. The, the gravel, I think, was chunderier than was expected. Um, and when you out, went out on a little... You're pushing the pace halfway through. You went on one or two little digs up some of these steeper climbs, and then on one of them, you just rolled away. And Pete Stetna, who is a very speedy individual, he basically asked me who you were, and I said, yeah, Colin's quick. Um, I can't say I said one way or the other whether I anticipated you going the distance, but it's like, yeah, that's a good move. And, and the past two years have shown that a 100-mile breakaway is what's going to win this race. So... I'm glad there is truth in the original part of the story that, that you linked together some, some big hours and some high temperatures. Um, good work, Austin, Texas. Anything, what are some other attributes? What are your other, your keys to success in that race? I mean, are you, hmm. are you hyper-conscious of equipment or nutrition or all of the above? I think we, we did have a great bike um, that Allied piece, uh, put together right before the race, got it to us a week ahead of time, but... Uh, ride. I went on a couple of long test rides on it, and I was confident that we had one of the best, if not the best, bike suited for that race particularly. So that was confidence-inspiring. Um, we were able to fit 42 mil tires, which is about as good as you could ask for for taking the big hits from, the, you know, doing the descents into those chunky sections, which is really where you're at risk of pinch-flatting. So that was, you know, that was uh, confidence-inspiring. And I also stayed on, I knew that amount of effort at a guy my size was going to be just a huge, huge caloric demand. So I pretty much just ate whenever I could, you know, whenever, as much as I could really. Mm -hmm. Not even whenever it came to mind, but I like tried to consume hard, solid food every 20 minutes. Hmm. And, um, what kind of, what are you eating? Are you eating bars? Are you eating I was granola eating bars? Are you eating sandwiches? Uh, I, I avoid uh, goos and gels until, you know, the last 20% of a race, typically. Uh, I never train with gels, just kind of save the novelty of it. It's for a, a lifestyle race. thing. 
I got to introduce you to maple syrup, though. Oh, anyway, go on. Mm, that's a little different. It uh, is, well, it is. So, yeah, I, I was, Scratch uh, hooked us up with a few boxes, um, several boxes of their, their concoctions uh, the day before the race, and I don't really have a sensitive stomach typically, so I was happy to just experiment with these new tasty, tasty uh, edibles and... Uh, not the not edibles, edibles straight from Colorado. Not Trust us. those edibles, uh, <laughs> bars and whatnot. So um, I was mostly eating scratch bars, uh-huh. enjoying these new flavors. And uh, but even those uh, get a little tiresome after hour five or six or seven or eight. Uh, but really, I mean, it was about a nine thousand calorie effort. So just imagine how many you have to eat every twenty minutes. Gulp down half a bar, chase it with scratch mix. Uh, we made the decision to mix all our water with scratch mix, which was questionable because just consuming sugar for that many hours is really challenging. Do you brush your teeth after races? I After this one, I certainly did. Yeah. Highly recommended after any event. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's actually bike training and racing is really hard on the teeth yeah. in terms of just being an extremely corrosive environment. FYI. I ate some gravel today. Literally. We were examining the... Uh, polish? The, the volcanic sand and i i was looking at the sand i was like mm, i may as well try it and well, not recommended because it turns out it dissipates very quickly and i was finding cooking sand out of my teeth for the next Ooh. hour and, and it's low caloric so it's sort of like ah what am i doing this may as well be baking soda yeah, which is good way. for brushing the teeth yeah polishing um but yeah I, that was my cans experience just, just focused on focused on f- nutrition hydration and um not thinking about winning the race, just focus on your line, keep it really efficient, stay aerodynamic in the headwind sections. And just, you know, we, I was pretty much just doing a solo century after we had ridden for a while together. So focused on the details. Um, let's hit on the, the more touchy subjects. Let's talk about getting arrow. Arrow bars, yay or nay? I, I used them for Dirty Kanza. My teammate Kevin and I had both brought them, and we were on the fence the night before. He said, ah, I think I'm not going to use them. And I was like, well, yeah, we shouldn't, but, you know, I'm going to use them just because, like, it's it's a proven, it's a, it's a formula that has been proven they to win that faster. race. They are faster. They are faster. They are more comfortable over time, especially. You can relax your back muscles. I'm pretty good at staying pretty damn aerodynamic and I always train in a, I, I did one training ride with aero bars before Kanza. Um, Nerd. so it's not something that I, <laughs> I had to test my dialed rig. I did one long ride with my whole rig carrying all my water just so I knew what to expect. Um, but yeah, I ran them day of and they're certainly an advantage, but, uh, I will not run them again just because it's, you know, I don't. I don't want to be a part of this debate. <laughs> this we have you on like record. The only way out. We have you on record. Um, I have one DK with them. I have one DK without them. I'll actually auction them, or actually give them away to some some lucky person via social media or something soon. That's my plan. That's a great idea. Let's make it exactly make it for the benevolent good. It it is such an interesting issue because the sport of gravel, I think, harkens to. Everybody, it is certainly the masses. There are, there are a lot of people who, who when you're solo at mile 180 and you're not vying for the win, you're vying for, for finishing, 
finishing to beat the sun, whatever yeah. it is, like, yeah, you want to mix up your position. You are going to be faster in the aero position. It's not that that I'm worried about. I don't think it's that that anybody's worried about. I think it's the aero position in the masses, in the groups, when you are wobbly, when you are less conditioned to to being in that position. I don't think anyone's going to argue that. On top of that, gravel is a sport that <clears throat> celebrates Frankenbikes. It's showing up on on mm -hmm. the mishmash of a whole bunch of things and like whatever is going to be faster. Is it a, you know, 27.5 front that's with a wide front and a narrow rear? I mean, that's what's mm -hmm. fun about it. There is no perfect answer. It's a bit of an arms race. Yeah, they're certainly not aesthetically pleasing. No, I, that's uh, my, Land that's Run came my... down to a sprint and there I am sprinting in my, in my aero bars and I'm like... I did not run them for Land Run. Yeah. But I still went faster than you guys. You still what? I, I went faster than you guys, average speed. At Land Run? Yeah, by about half a mile per hour. But I flatted for eight minutes. Oh, I was going to say, how does that work if I finished before you and <laughs> started at the, the same back. time? OTB. <laughs> Valid point that you have a faster average speed. Without aero bars. <laughs> well, um, okay, how do you feel about, what do you think about the world tour coming to gravel? I think it's exciting. Cool. Um, is there, are there events that you think that they're particularly more inclined to do well at? What do you think would happen if, if, I mean, I'm, I'm super psyched you won. What do you think would happen if world tour went for a second, third, which very feasibly could have happened? I don't know. In terms of, you know, Public in terms reaction? of uh, yeah, I guess in terms of perception, yeah, I think it would be split, probably 70, 30, 70 people, seventy percent of people uh, celebrating the fact that there's more attention and more higher level of competition and training and preparedness, and then thirty percent would, you know, gripe that it's not like the old days and things are changing. Like we said, the sport is fluid. Exactly. Um, yes, that is true. Especially an evolving sport such as gravel racing. Mm -hmm. State and you of see, flux. Hey, there's there's gravel stages in the tour. There are, I mean, shoot, I raced the 20, mm, 2010 Giro. We raced some white roads of, of uh, Strada Bianchi, which coincidentally was the only year that Strada Bianchi has been rainy. And so we are sand in every part of our bodies and bikes and bus afterwards. And yeah, there's there's gravel that is makes cycling cool and interesting and fun and and palpable and gritty there's an interesting perspective when when world tour shows up because right it's like it's an expectation they have a better pedigree they have a better training they they you and i are drinking beer right now there are a lot of people who are in the world tour who are abstemious from alcohol for many many years because at the end of the day alcohol is a toxin and they don't want that toxin in their body um I don't have a right answer. I mean, any answer, right or wrong. I thought it. I thought it was really fun racing against Pete at BWR. He absolutely took it seriously. Um, he was definitely taking Dirty Kansas seriously, rightfully so. I mean, his sponsors are expecting him to go there and and show up and perform. So it's interesting that they've also. That was less on the radar. That was sort of a mid-season spring surprise that that the Trek boys were showing up and doing that because you know. Once EF back in 20, at the end of 2018, said that they were coming to gravel events. I think that pinged on a lot of people's radar. And it. They also planned on going to Red Hook, which 
they did or exciting. Did not. They announced that they were planning on going to Red Hook Crit. WTF, boys, where are you? Yeah, they were canceled this year. Oh. Well, I had a conversation earlier today with um, Eddie Holt, who is the CEO of EF. He's a cyclist. He's going to be out there bumping elbows tomorrow. Oh, cool. He, in the company, for, for legitimate marketing advertising reasons, bought the Slipstream operation. So they're not just a title sponsor, but they own the team. Maybe they should be the new Red Hook. And they can just buy mm. the entity. You want to have a sweet event, just own it. It's like you you don't just go to your buddy's backyard party. It's true. You have the backyard party. They should talk to Dave Trimble. Is he the Red He's Hook the, guy? Uh, the founder, yes. What is Red Hook? It's a location, right? Red Hook is location in Brooklyn, New York, right on the water side overlooking the um, Statue of Liberty. Just beautiful little nook of the city, um, former dockyards that... Um, far away from public transit so it feels really isolated and just kind of remote while you're still in New York City. Beautiful, beautiful area. And that is where the original race was held. Something like that that I think an issue with cycling is that, um, you know, a perpetual change of sponsor, sponsor names, title sponsors and so forth, like things are changing all the time. And so on one hand, I immediately think, oh man, who could be the title sponsor of Red Hook? On the other hand, like let it be standalone. Let it be the location and that be the beacon beacon of awesomeness what do you uh what do you expect tomorrow i expect tomorrow being the rift gritty gritty wet messy um extremely chunky Mm -hmm. cold at times epically beautiful at other times um i don't know i've never raced here likewise race this group i think uh i think i think we'll have about probably 10 to 15 guys about halfway through and then we'll have a bike race whittle it down from there so so to our listener we got a 200k race it is a lollipop that goes up a was described earlier as up the shaft and then around the lollipop and down the shaft i don't think anyone has ever referred to it as a lollipop shaft so curious choice of words there friend (laughs) um uh 200k Entirely uphill for the first 45 miles and effectively all downhill for the final 60. So I think it's going to be a fast ride. Uh, it's going to be damp. It's going to be gritty is a great word for it. This is certainly uh, soil that drains quickly. So as much as there are waterfalls and a couple of river crossings, there's no peanut butter mud as we've seen at other other events. Um, I like I, you got to point out the folks tomorrow. I mean, like I'm aware of you. I'm, I'm excited to go toe to toe, but I got to meet this. What was the fellow's name who picked you up? Hadi. Hadi. Yeah, I'll, I'll point him out. All right, he's a pretty nice fellow. So cool. Well, that's what's great about this. I like the I like the nice people in the sport. Um, what else? Visit Iceland if you have not. Beautiful spot. Yeah, how's your culinary experience been? Have you what's the, what's the most exotic thing you've consumed thus far? Um, I think I had some pickled shark with breakfast today. Today? No, yesterday. Here. Here. It wasn't shark. There was herring. Okay. Pickled herring, perhaps. World of difference. Um, you can buy pickled herring in the States. You can't get, I don't think you can get pickled shark in the States. Oh. If you find yourself in front of some pickled shark, make sure that you they point it out and get it in front of us. Today I had the delicacy of fish jerky. I like to eat exotic foods. I, 
am excited to have you try it because Ansel is going to get the fish jerky ah, as perfect. we speak. Uh, what else are exotic things? Yeah, I mean, the breakfast spread, I would just call it, describe it as traditional European. I mean, you got the cheeses, the meats, the the good, great bread. It reminded me yeah, of Anadama. Bread. Rich, tasty Certainly. bread. Hello, waffles. Yeah. I wasn't expecting to see With a Belgian waffle real maker. Real maple syrup. Real maple syrup. Hats off to them. I did bring my own just because you can never be too careful. Um, are you up for the challenge to try some fish jerky? Absolutely. All right. This is Fiskerkin. It wouldn't be real if we didn't get it documented. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Colin Strickland is going to try a tasty piece of... It's haddock. I've already tried mine today, so... Tastes like something we could eat on a long voyage across uh, the Atlantic Ocean. Yes. I think that's... You'd eat that that's with your hardtack, right? I think we're a bit spoiled, to be honest, these oh, days. My Lord. We eat like kings of old, so things are a little more pungent or flavorful. Or considered. Now, <laughs> I am ecstatic that you have consumed this much of it. I am a pretty creative eater. I like eating like sea urchin, eel, all sorts of... I've eaten barnacle. Give me some weird food and I'll, I'll take it to task. I tried that today and I was like... Oh it's my god, that is awful. fishy, but you know, I I don't I don't mind. It's concentrated it. fish. It's right? concentrated it's, fish. It's it's extremely fishy, and uh, it's and it has a particular odor to it. You know, there's stinky cheeses, and then you tr- fishy odor. He's, <laughs> he's fishy all in. Yeah, and there's there's some there's some cheeses that that taste like that smell like feet, and then you try them, and they're very rich and unctuous, and they're good. I like fish. I like fishy fish. You sir are a champion because that stuff is gross. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, sometimes I will uh, indulge in a uh, a can of uh, salmon or something after a race. It's I, great for protein. It's I love canned salmon. I make a sriracha salmon, mm-hmm. canned salmon. People are like, oh, that's weird. I'm like, well, you eat tuna fish, you but weirdo. But post-race? Yeah. You just get after that. Well, it's a great way to pound some, you know, salty protein right after a race in a remote area, you know, before you can get to a restaurant or something. My first priority is refresh carbs, and that's why I go for beers. Let's switch gears to Texan beers. Favorite Texan beer. Mm. Go. Currently, I'm a, lar- a big fan of the uh, Electric Jellyfish from uh, an Austin brewery, um, Pint House. Okay. Let's see. Grew up on the Real Ale, which is from a town 30 miles west of Austin. They have a lot of assortments. Delicious stuff. Um, How about uh, Noisy Cricket? Allied. Have you had that? No, I have not. Oh, I, not oh, not not allied friends. Uh, friends, friends and allies. And allies. Oh yeah, they're they're amazing. They they are uh, every week we get to indulge in that stuff out at the driveway series. Not noisy cricket, but um, yeah, friends and allies incredible. Noisy cricket is a great name because it's a sessionable beer, and mm-hmm. so much like the noisy cricket in uh, Men in Black, mm-hmm. see tiny weapon that. This is a very flavorful beer. Um, great stuff. Great stuff. Well, that couldn't have gone better. I'm pleased that you took care of that. Uh, hats off to you. And 
I think that's gross. Are we satisfied? <laughs> I'm not. Delicious. <laughs> Try this. <laughs> Next year, when your team is a variety of sponsors and, and bit of Fisker, we know exactly why. Because you put down some fish jerky. Fiskers. Hmm, familiar. Fiskers. Oh, did I tell you it was fish jerky? I meant it was cat food. <laughs> All right. Well, Let's love it. Try it. I've got uh, I've got nothing but a meal and some sleep and some preparation for a bike race. So I imagine you're Early the same. One. I wish you a wonderful night of sleep. Cheers, my friend. Cheers, Ted. Thanks very much, Colin, for taking the time to chat amid a very busy international racing and travel schedule. Really fun to share the podium here and there with Colin in what I think is safe to say has been a smashing season for him. And a sincere thanks again goes out to The Feed for supporting this pod. Again, for a full lineup of all your untapped needs, all of your nutrition needs. Try my personally curated box at thefeed.com slash king with 15% savings or hop on over to thefeed.com and chat with their experts to see what is going to be the best nutrition technique to optimize your training and your racing. Once there, simply use the code KING10, K-I-N-G, one zero, to save 10% instantly on everything store-wide. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, that is all for now. Until next time. Please enjoy the ride.